0: Welcome to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rotford, a physiotherapist, Pilates instructor, and fellow hippie. We're here to talk all things hip dysplasia, to build a community, to support and guide each other through the ups and the downs. If you like the podcast, please share it and rate it. It does help others to find it too. And if you have any feedback or questions, they're always welcome. Email me at laura at That's it for now. Let's get started with the show. everybody to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. This week we have with us a guest named Elena Long, um, a personal trainer and yoga instructor who has a wonderful story to tell us. um, A few different types of treatments that we've not had yet on the podcast so please stay tuned um, and listen in to this story. Welcome Elena. Hello Laura, hi. (laughs) It's so so amazing to have you on. Thank you so much for your time and coming on to share your story with us today. Thank So your story, like I said, is slightly different to some of the others that we've heard, Um, some different treatment um, and surgeries that you've had um, in comparison to some of the other stories so far. Um, And the thing that I was really curious to be able to ask you about was your stem cell therapy, your BMAC injections. Mm -hmm. Um, We will definitely get back to that. um, But let's just hear a little bit about the first time you heard about dysplasia. When was the first time you heard about it in your life? Okay, well, I'm I was
1: actually um, an athlete for a while, about eight years I was doing um, triathlon and I did um, ITU championships at an amateur level and I was training twice a day, six days a week. Um, and at some point, I, I, mean, I did quite a few sort of high-end races, um, two championships, and then I decided to have a gert training for an Ironman, which obviously the distance is a lot, lot more, particularly with the running and I'm not a great runner and It wasn't until I was on a 10 mile run that um, all of a sudden I couldn't bring my leg through, and uh, about six miles. And I just, you know, I literally was brought to a walk. Um, So I went to see a physio, and he said, Oh, it's probably your sacroiliac joint. And he had a bit of an examination, gave me some exercises, sent me away. And I knew that wasn't right. I knew it was a lot worse than that. (laughs) So I, I, um, I spoke to someone where I was working actually as a personal trainer and um, she was quite clued up on, on um, things. And she said, look, do what the queen would do. Go to the top surgeon and start there. Don't go you know, down the route of hunting around, seeing what's wrong. She said, get a good MRI done and see what's wrong. So that's um, basically what I did. I went and had an MRI. I went to my GP first and she referred me to have an MRI, saw a surgeon. And he said, yes, you've got a label tear. And did you know you have mild hip dysplasia? I just casually (laughs) threw that that in. in. (laughs) (laughs) But how come I've been doing all this training and all this sport? And, you know, and I used to do gymnastics as well, you know. And uh, um, so it was was such a shock. Um, And when I spoke to my mum, she said, you know what? It was funny. She said, when you were born, she said the nurse examined you. And she said... She just sort of went, hmm. So my mum said, oh, is something wrong? She said, well, no, it should be fine. And of course, probably if she delved a bit further than she may. And of course back then, you know, they didn't have the scans that they have now, so they didn't um, discover it. But, um, but yes, I mean, for, fortunately, it was mild hip dysplasia they discovered. But it, it, you know, the, the ramifications, particularly if you're active over time, um, you know, it just, it gets worse and worse. And, um, you know, and it did affect me after that, um, once I was diagnosed with hip dysplasia and a labral tear, it's literally been, you know, operation and rehab after rehab. There. So, um so, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the first surgeon I saw, he said, I'm not going to touch you with a barge pole, basically, he said. Right. it wasn't um, his specialty? or No, he just said, I'm too scared to go in and, and operate, he said, because there's too many nerves and it's too risky, and obviously back then, and that was 2009 when they discovered it, so um, it was all quite unheard of, um, particularly in adults, you know, he said, look, I've, I've done hip replacements in people half your age, but I mean, I was probably 34 at the time. Um, he said, I'd be, you know, worried about doing this kind of arthroscopy on you. So he sent me away and I was obviously very, um, bewildered and thought, well, what am I going to do now? Um, so I, I literally went on the internet and I just hunted around and looked up into hip dysplasia and, um, I came across the PAO and um, what that involved, um, because when I read that you know um, you needed to be sort of in your twenties and um, have a much healthier hip, I wasn't sure if I was going to qualify for that. Um, and so I went back to my GP and said, you know, look, what are my options? Is there another surgeon out there that I can go and see? And luckily, her son went to a surgeon who is based in London, and she gave me the name of Mr. Richard Villa, um, who's now the Villa Barzilow practice. Um, so I went to see him, and uh, in London, and he again diagnosed me with um, bilateral acetabular dysplasia, mild dysplasia, and he said, "Yes, you've got a label tear in your right hip." Um, He said, no, it's fine. I can operate on you. He said, I do operations all the time with people with hip dysplasia and arthroscopy. So I was like, oh, such a sigh of relief. Someone can help me. (laughs) Oh, wow. You know, this is amazing. So I just, you know, there was me thinking, you know, I was, I was an endless case. So. Um, but whilst through my research, I was looking at, um, stem cell therapy and I mentioned it to Mr. Villa then, I said, Look, have, you, have you thought about doing any stem cell therapy? And he sort of looked at me quite surprised and said, it's a bit early <laughs> days, yeah. <laughs> and me being a personal trainer, you know, you're curious and you research everything. And I was just, you know, I, I wouldn't take no for an answer. So I, I wanted to find the best possible outcome for me. So, um, I went away and, and of course after that, um, there was things going on, you know, I, I met someone and then um, I felt pregnant and we got married, so um, when I went to see my surgeon, I was actually, I'm pregnant, I was like, okay, well go and have your baby and then come back to me <laughs> afterwards, so um, of course that threw a lot in a bit of a worry because, um, you know, obviously with the ligaments all going lax and everything through the pregnancy. So we booked it for a year later, because um, you said you need to ha- be, uh, not be breastfeeding when you have the operation. So um, I went in to have the right hip done and um, that was August 2011, so after my surgery. Which surgery was this, sorry? So this was going to be a hip arthroscopy. The arthroscopy. Yeah, repair of the labrum, um, so of the right hip. Um, and i went into it was cambridge they, they were operating from so i went out all the way up to cambridge um, we stayed in a hotel i didn't eat went in for the operation and i said look i said it's actually my left left hip that's hurting <laughs> and, and mr villa looked at me and he said look if you're not sure what's going on he said we better leave that so i went all that way and it was like he said and i thought oh well surely you should know whether to hip operate on me and I was unsure because I said look it's my left hip that's really painful now I don't know whether this is the right thing it was very very worrying so I left actually and didn't have the operation wow Uh, that's amazing yeah Um, and then um obviously things got a lot worse and then I finally had the operation in January 2012 on which hip? Like on the right hip. So that was like three years after the diagnosis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so and I know it was literally like, you know, pushing the, the pram with my baby, you know, it's how far I could walk and and, and and I had to do this report for Mr. Villa and say like how many how many miles have you managed to walk without pain today, you know? Um, which was quite good because I thought it was quite good that he get got me to keep a detailed report of, of my pain. But it you know, it was up and down each day. Um, so then, so, yeah, I had that first operation that was without the DMAC or stem cells. So it was just an arthroscopy. Um, and that was January, 2012 and then February, 2012, six weeks after the operations the, the um, the rehab all went very well. And then I fell pregnant again. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm um, like, well, so <laughs> yeah. yeah, he wasn't too happy with me actually. So. He said, oh, it's a little bit soon after the operation. So, um, uh, yeah, so that was, um, that was unplanned. And um, so I got through that pregnancy. And, of course, it meant, I think probably because I didn't fully do all the rehab um, and had the second pregnancy, um, that I then got another tear in the labrum on the right hip. Um, so I had to go in again for another operation, which was 2015. So, um, actually, yeah. So that was a few years after the second, child, the second baby was born. Um, and this time, um, cause I, when I went in for the um, consultation, I said "Is there any advancement on the stem cells. And so, you know, that being sort of five years later, he says, well, actually we've just done our first 100 stem cell. Um, treatments, and he said they've actually worked very well on the hips, because he said originally we were we were having great success with the knees. That's common practice now, and he said yes, we're actually doing the hips. And he said I think this might actually help you, um, you know, by resurfacing your hip joint as well as direct repairing the labrum. And um, they were very much pre- preferred preserving the hips because initially when I went to see them, they were um, why don't you just have a hip replacement? And at 34, I was like, not sure about that. Cause at that time they weren't, you know, you, you literally had to replace them within 10 years. And at 34, yeah. I wasn't too happy about that. And it was a bit frightening. And um, I did say about the, the PAO and I said, you know, I'm like, is that something you can do? And he said, at that time he said, well, it's a, he didn't do it. And he said, it's a big operation. He said, I wouldn't advise it. you have it. And he said, Let, let's see what we can do. He said, if we can just do, a little arthroscopy, go in, repair the labor and see how you are because you've got mild hip dysplasia, you might be okay. So I had that, uh, operation with the arthroscopy and stem cell treatment where literally what they did was they, um, took the stem cells from my femur. Um, so they stuck a needle in and, so, um, uh, and then withdrew the stem cells and then they whizz it up in like a centrifugal thing. And mm-hmm. The glue and everything, and then they they pop it back in the joint and they resurface the joint. And after the operation, he showed me the, the pictures of it, and it was amazing. You know, because I had some degeneration of the hip joint, and it had literally just sealed it all over, and, and it looked amazing. So i was very. That's great.
0: incredible. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask a little bit about the process and how you know how how it happens for you as the patient. So you said they go in and they collect the stem cells um, they did from your femur. And um, obviously there are a few other areas that they, that they tend to collect them from as well. Like the, the bones in the hip, for example, there's a few areas um, in the ilium they can collect from, but for yours, it was the femur. So um, what was the process like, you know, when they told you about what they were doing, was it a needle that went in and you know, in, yeah, so it's a new, it um,
1: yeah, so you have just an extra, they, they had three incisions where they went in for the orthosophy to repair the labrum, and then there was just another little incision, a little bit lower down into the femur, where they extracted the stem cells, um, and, um, yeah, and they just told me that that, that there was going to be just a little incision there as well, um, so they said that that might be quite, so, but it, he did say that, um this time around we needed to be on crutches for a week um or a couple of weeks rather than um coming them sooner because the last time I had it I was literally off crutches in three days actually I did a lot of exercise prior to the operation tried to get my hips as strong as possible because I had the sort of mentality that you know there's nothing I I can do worse now so I might as well just go for it and work through the pain and get as strong as I can and I, I think that paid off but listening to your other podcasts I think it was with Claire um she was saying about you know taking your time and getting your gait walking properly and I, I think now I was probably too eager to get off the crutches you know <laughs> maybe I should have perhaps held back a little bit um so and and so with the stem cells I did hold back and was um I was on crutches I think for a week with the stem cells one just okay. to help them um in and um and I actually did my rehab myself because the first operation I went to a physio with the EIS and the English Institute of Sport and she was very good and I still had all the exercises from what she gave me and just went through the same protocol and this time I was a lot more careful. I literally um, in fact my husband built me a tent in the garden and it was my rehab tent and oh really? Yeah. <laughs> and he bought some second-hand equipment, and um, the kids could literally. Because the second operation was in the summer, and I would really recommend if you're going to have an operation to have it in the summer because it makes you feel so much better. Because you kind oh, of really, you know, you well uh, for me it was just a kind of routine that um, you know I could then go out into the tent, do my exercises kids would play in the garden and I could literally what and I it was like I was on holiday so it's very relaxing I had my music on and and did my my rehab in there and I made sure I did it three times a day um, you know and they say i oh, do do the first ex- sort of couple of weeks of exercises do them as often as you can and I think that was that was the key to that actually because when I went back to my consultant six weeks later he was blown away and said you've done really, really well. So I was quite chuffed actually, just as a, yeah, a, as a, trainer, a lot of physio and having, you know, focused on, on doing that um, very carefully. Um, but I, I also had a, a really good book actually. Um, it was called um, Movement for Dance or Something. And it was using a lot of the thera bands which I found very, very useful um, in terms of um, gently, Progressing the exercises, Um, so yeah, so so that that was successful, and literally, I've been pain-free for well since that operation, which is five years, and I'm just about now getting pain. So it's it you know it's something to consider. Um, You know, if if you're frightened of doing the full hip replacement and your your dysplasia is mild and you've got tear. The arthroscopy with the repair and the stem cells for me, for the right hip worked. The left hip, which I had done last year, has not been such a success story, and simply because I think it's the de- the degradation of the the hip. So, like with I think it was Joe Wells you had on on your last podcast, yeah. Saying it's it's all about the age of the hip and how far gone your arthritis is, and for me the. The second operation I don't think has been successful simply because the the grade it was grade four arthritis. Um and I'm a little bit disappointed because when I had the second operation on the right hip, and um, they said to me, Did you know you've got a tear on your left hip as well? And I think that's why the first time I went in, I said it's my left hip that's hurting, not my right. So I think I said, right, can I get get me in now? I want to be operated <laughs> on my left hip straight after the right hip was done. You know, said, no, if it's asymptomatic, don't get it done. And I think now, I wish they'd listened to me a bit more because I feel that I should have had it done six months afterwards or something, just because even if it's asymptomatic, asymptomatic as an athlete and as someone who's very athletic, as you know, is you get these compensation patterns. And... I've now got scoliosis of the spine. Um, I've got grade four arthritis on the left hip. And I think it's simply because it was left too long after the right hip operation. Um, and, and it's, a, yeah, so it's disappointing because I feel if it had just been caught that much sooner, I could have had the stem cells and I could have had the same success rate as the right hip and it would have given me another five years leeway. But now i think i'm i'm possibly looking at a hip replacement on the left um, and potentially the right as well Uh, i'm not sure whether the right hip's flared up because the left is so bad now um you know to the extent where i've got crunching in the knee and the ankles and the whole the whole kinetic chain has gone on the left leg it's uh, very very painful
0: it's i mean it's such an incredible Story to hear about, and that the success from the from the first hit that you had done with the stem cell to be pain free for five years afterwards is, you know, we very rarely hear of stories that give so much relief. Um, so to know that that's becoming more of a frequent option for people, I think, is really something that that should be looked into a little bit more. And to fight for your hips, I think, is another part of the message that we're conveying there, right? So you know yourself better than anybody does and to to know that there was that amount of degeneration there even though you were asymptomatic whether that was the right decision or not you know we we can't we can't tell we're not the surgeons and the consultants but to know that everything is considered you know the sport that you do the work that you do everything about you as a person i think is so important to take that into consideration when making a decision like that so i i hope that that makes what you've said makes other people consider their own stories. And actually, even though it might not be too painful at the moment, is there something that can be done that will then avoid having to have a bigger surgery or a more invasive surgery um, further down the line? So Absolutely. more in terms of preventative medicine. Yeah, I
1: think so. I mean, I particularly, and um, the thing that, that I had in my mind at the time was, um, you know, technology is developing all the time. And, you know, I was thinking if I can hold off as long as possible, then, know these hip replacements they're gonna get like they are now which is you know they can last 20 20 odd years um which back then it was like 10 years so thankfully you know i I think i did the right thing and um i'm lucky i mean I'm, i'm 45 now and you know it's amazing that i'm still going with my own hips with hip dysplasia and i'm so thankful that and I'm actually thankful that I, in a way, that I wasn't diagnosed when I was a baby. And I think the reason for that is if I had been told, don't move, you know, you've got hip dysplasia. I mean, I literally did competitive gymnastics, you know, swimming, um, triathlon, rowing, all these thoughts, and I just kept going. And, um, and I think if I'd been told, don't run, don't do this, you know, I think you put those limitations on yourself. And, you know, and I think the fact that I literally trained like, you know, as an athlete, particularly helped because I was keeping myself very, very strong. Um, And I was also doing a very, very considered and balanced um, uh, uh, kind of workout in the sense that, um, you know, I was combining recovery days, which were so important, stretching and, you know the whole the whole balance of you know, good sleep good nutrition and i think that all plays a massive part in how you can help yourself in terms of you know um limiting your inflammation and your pain and um and i think all that knowledge that i gained from training for triathlon really really helped in terms of me getting through these years of you know of, of, of waiting really i suppose um and, um, and yeah, and I think, I think that's really helped. And I think also my intrigue in sort of biohacking and I'm massively into just, you know, seeing how I can, you know, combat any kind of, um, diseases or degenerative diseases is, is, is um, something I'm really curious about. And, uh, and I think that's why I went down the road with the stem cells. It's like, you yeah, know, just anything, <laughs> try it, let's try it. <laughs> let's give it a go. Yeah.
0: Um, Absolutely. And so just going back to the, to the triathlon um, work that you did and the training that you did, and like you said, you're working towards the Ironman. I, th- I think with the triathlon, even though there are certain disciplines in there that you found harder, like the running, for example, I think the variation in the movements that you were doing, you know, with the swimming, which is a non-weight bearing and um, with the cycling, which is re- very much reduced weight bearing um, mm-hmm. still allowed you to be really strong without necessarily doing yourself harm or inflammation. Um, and that m- made you able to do so much more of the things that you love. And like you said, probably allowed you to get to this point in life because you were stronger um, mm. throughout everything that you've done throughout your life. So Absolutely. I think it's it's important for people not to be scared. And I think that's something that Joel Wells really wanted to convey within his interview as well that we need to move we need to be as strong as we can and there are certain limitations for certain people and everybody's hips are different um but yeah always always seek to find out what you can do to keep yourself as strong as possible and i think it's really incredible the amount of things that you achieved with your triathlon thank you
1: yeah I, I, and I, I think it's all about as well it's, it's as i say it can't stress enough is the balance you know um i mean i'm a yoga teacher as well and I found the yoga is um, something that we all, um, you know, maybe have tried or want to get into and some people can get quite obsessed with it. And I think one thing you've got to be careful about if you've got hip dysplasia is to not overdo it and not to treat it like gymnastics because it's not. It's about, um, and I remember when I was training, my my, um, yoga teacher telling me, you don't need to hyperextend. You know, and even for a normal person, you don't need to, to be good at yoga. It's not about being as bendy as you can. You know, it's about giving your body the chance to um, be supple in the right way. And um, and I think that's something I've learned along the way is not to overstretch, and that was probably the reason why I had to go in for my left hip operation as well because I actually was fine until I was doing some yoga and then I I, I had a silly moment and tried to teach the splits and overstretched <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I think that's what did it and I literally you know had the same symptoms as what I had with the right leg and you know by that overstretching was you know, was my downfall. I, you know, I overdid it, and I think that's so important: is to hold back and not let your ego get the better of you. Because something that yoga teaches is, is you know, to hold back your ego and not, you know, try to to you know, to do something to an extreme, which we all sometimes do. I think, and um, and I think again that reflects with the Ironman training as well. You know, I was going from one extreme to another and overdoing it, and. I think with, um, you know, with the, all that running training, again, it's about balance. And I, I particularly go with a view of, you know, do all sorts of variety of sports, you know, like that. And, and that speaks to your triathlons, you've got the swimming, you've got cycling, you've got the running, but give everything a go, do a bit of yoga, do a bit of Pilates. Um, you know, don't hold back on trying things that help um, because they all
0: feed into the you know the balance of your body I think absolutely and you can have so much fun with experimenting with with new sports and exercises yeah. I mean I've recently um, started roller skating again which I absolutely love having oh a God. great time doing that um, yeah. and it's just perfect for me because it's working on all my weak areas um, yes. and yeah it's just it's so much fun
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's just quite, trying to
0: find something that works for you
1: exactly I mean I know mean, there's quite a craze of paddle boarding at the moment as well and I think oh that sounds great because my bo- lower body doesn't have to move <laughs> I can just um stand on a, a board and go down the river with um you know with a paddle which sounds fantastic so
0: but it's um, still so good for your balance and support stability
1: yeah 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 so so yeah I, I think you know keeping positive and not thinking i because my I went through quite a, a depressive stage of That's it, my triathlon careers, you know, not career, but, you know, my triathlon days are over, which I was so passionate about and absolutely loved doing. And, you know, the fact that I couldn't do the running part of it really got me down. And I think, you know, you just got to kind of pick yourself up and go, okay, well, what else can I do? You know, let's try something else. Let's, you know, even if you have to think, well, let's put that in the box, that was those days. And, you know, let's try something else now. And, and, and it's, and you know, I think it's all about keeping strong and, and and particularly doing weights, I think is another important thing. And um, weight training is very underestimated. And I know with hip dysplasia, I mean, particularly as I'm getting older now, I'm finding that my body's a lot more fragile than it used to be. But, um, I think picking up a few heavy weights, won't go amiss. Um, occasionally, um, I yeah. find that can really, um, particularly upper body, because I think, um, Sometimes when you focus on your lower body with hip dysphagia, I find you know, I'm constantly going, oh, I must get my lower body strong. But actually, if my upper body posture goes, that's it. You know, my lower body goes as well. So if, my, if I've been sat down and my shoulders drop forwards, then when I stand up, my knees drop in. And I am, so I'm very much into making sure my upper body is strong as well and my posture and my upper back.
0: You're absolutely preaching to the converted here. So, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Um, um, yeah.
1: Um,
0: Exactly. Um, and it's not just the Pilates, you know, I, I love weight training as well. Um, but I would just say if anyone is going to start going into weight training, just make sure that you have, you know, a personal trainer or, you know, a weight training coach that does understand your condition Um and if they don't either find another one or help them understand, um, you know, give them the information to understand where your limits should be, where your vulnerability should be. Um, and you know, if you find somebody who actually has hip dysplasia as well as a coach like yourself, um, you know, that's an absolute, absolute winner. So, um, definitely some important things to consider when you're going into, you know, different sports or pushing yourself. Yeah, yeah, I can't emphasize
1: the muscle enough because there's so many personal trainers out there there's some fantastic ones but there's also some ones that will literally just get you in the gym and they just want to see you you know being sick on the floor or you know breathing you and it's not what it should be about you know there should be a bit of compassion and a bit of understanding that everyone is different and everyone has to different conditions and you know if if a person if i went to a personal trainer and they told me to squat to the floor i'd just look at them and go no way that's not going to happen because i've got hip dysplasia and you know, and then, uh, you like you say, if, if you've got a trainer that knows about hip dysplasia and knows that someone with hip dysplasia isn't going to be able to squat to the floor then, then um, potentially, then, you know, um, then I think that's so important is to, to take into account somebody's um, anatomy is, is very, very important.
0: Absolutely. So how have you found um, working in the job that you do with hip dysplasia? Have there been times where it's been, you know, either something that's incredible because it means you get to be active a bit more within your day-to-day life and that's helped you on your personal journey or have there been any times where it's been a hindrance because you've been struggling at a certain point in your journey and it's perhaps affected your work at all so have a little bit of a chat about that if you wouldn't mind okay so yeah so the um it has
1: affected my work in the sense that um you know I can't really run very well. So, um, you know, if someone was to say to me, Can you come for a run with me as a personal trainer? I, I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, luckily, I was working in um, a gym, which didn't require me to do that. So, but now that I'm freelance, that is something that is a hindrance because, um, you know, it does um, put a limitation on what I can offer as a service. And Everything has to be refined to a gym setting where I don't have to go off and do a run with somebody or um, you know jump around because I I simply couldn't do it. So my a lot of my work is about coaching people in the gym rather than actually actively um, participating. And it and it is a bit of a worry because normally you know your image and your fitness is a reflection on you as a trainer. And you know, with myself it, it has been a limitation and it has been a hindrance to me um in terms of my profile. So yes.
0: And have have there been times where um needing to be out in the gym and being active a little bit more has helped your journey at all, or has that not really been something that's been a part? Yeah, I, I think
1: the discipline um understanding that I need to move and being out, yeah, being having to work and and for example you know um I give you an example of, of doing yoga training um, I was training somebody twice a week and um actually participating with them doing the yoga and it really I really found it helped me because um you know it, it was a gradual process and I found that it got me back into doing that again, doing yoga as well as as weight training. So yes, my, my job actually does. The when you work with clients, it can be um, motivating for yourself as well because you know you, you work together and and you when you um, sometimes when I'm coaching somebody, you know, if I'm actually demonstrating with them, then it, I found it was actually therapeutic for myself as well. Particularly
0: with yoga, yeah. I, I mean, I ask that because I, I definitely feel that with my own work. You know, being able to coach people through. Their hip dysplasia, you know, with the online work that I do or with the Pilates classes, I've always loved that I get to do this stuff with them. And it's always been an absolute bonus and something that I appreciate every single day, um, mm. to be able to, to do that, have that awareness and have that extra reason to, to do those activities alongside people. Um, so I'm grateful for that every day. <laughs> <laughs> so when we look back over your over your journey you know you've had some um pretty pretty big life changes you know you had two children along your journey which obviously made things a little bit more challenging in terms of the stability around your pelvis um so when you look back at that part of the of the journey is there anything because i know there's lots of lots of people that have hip dysplasia that have children were there any difficulties or um moments that you thought this has really helped along along that stage? Um, initially with the,
1: the second operation and as I say when my husband built the tent and everything and I you know that was fantastic so I really got into the rehab. Um, obviously with children it is very difficult because you know if they ask you to do something and, and you're struggling around with your your crutches it, it can get you know quite difficult because you don't like to say no and Luckily, um, as I say, that operation, I had my husband around, but this, this last operation with my left hip, my husband unfortunately passed away. So um, I didn't have any help and I had to go in for the operation literally after his funeral, which was horrendous. Um, my kids um, went to a friend's house. I had her husband take me up to the hospital, which again was, you know, you, you've got this unfamiliarity. I didn't have um, support from my um, immediate family because my mother's that bit older and my father and they weren't in the position um, with their health to help me out. So, you know, when when you're asking a friend to help you and they don't really quite understand what's going on with the operation, it can be quite nerve wracking. And I felt very uncomfortable going into the operation um, last year with my left hip and then After the operation I had a horrendous um, spasm. I felt like I'd been shot in the leg actually and I had five physios trying to get me back into the the hospital bed because I think I was trying to rush to get out of hospital and get back home as quickly as possible because I knew my kids were staying with someone else and I was worried that the guy who'd taken me was hanging around waiting and in the end, they just said, "No, you've got to stay in hospital, and you've got to recover, and you're going to have to stay another night." So I sort of obviously did as they said, and um, and so yeah, this that I think is it's a very important point is is having the support network, and I think podcasts like this, if you can reach out to as many people and get people understanding what it is that um, us hippies are going through, is is very important because you know, it, for me, it was like, I felt like I was a bit of a hindrance and um, it wasn't any of their fault. It's just, they thought, oh, I've just gone in for a general operation and I'm out and I'm fine and that's it. But it's such a slow process afterwards and you feel such a reliance, such um, a hindrance on other people. And, you know, I kind of got home and I was familiar with using my crutches, so that was fine. Um, but having two kids around that, you know, they didn't quite get, they got to help mum. <laughs> it, it made it a lot harder doing the rehab and to be honest, I just didn't get to do any of the exercises. And I think that was probably, as well as the, the um, severity of my arthritis, I think that was another reason why this wasn't such a success on the le- left hip, simply because I just didn't do, get time to do the rehab exercises. And, um, you know, and I think that is so important. And uh, it was, yeah, it was very hard, but I knew I had to have the operation, but I also knew that the rehab afterwards wasn't gonna, gonna be as successful. Um, you know, I tried my best to sort of get in there, but yeah, at the same time, some of the exercises I was doing, there was just some aggravation and I knew that this hadn't worked as well. So I think you can tell in a sense, um, so yes, it, it can be quite hard when you haven't got, you know, someone supporting you. I think it's, it's very important to, to try and, um, you know, get people sort of understanding what you're going to be going through and what the implications yeah. are when you come out.
0: Do you mind if I ask, how old were your children when you had that surgery? The, the recent one?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so my, well, my son's nine and my daughter's seven um so he's turning 10 actually in August so (laughs) Um, but yeah they're 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 um they're not like like their mum really they're not very active they love being on the tech i suppose so,
0: um, <laughs> well i s- suppose the uh, the potential bonus of that is there's maybe not so much taxiing around for uh, after school clubs and bits and pieces exactly perhaps. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they
1: can be very quiet at times and i sometimes wonder you know um how they stay on their, their tech so long but yes yeah, so in a way that is that is useful and you know but at the same time you are ending up having to do everything for them and um that I mean, I actually kind of looked to see if there was any kind of carer networks around and there's just nothing, you know, there's nobody out there that will, um, uh, you know, I, I kind of rang somebody up and said, well, oh, do you offer a full-time carer that's DBS check that can, you know, be there with children as well and look after me for a couple of weeks just while I'm rehabbing?" And And, you know, there was just, there was no facility for somebody to come around and, and give me full-time not full-time care but just kind of come in help out you know um whether it be with meals or or um, washing and things like that so you know I, I think um there is something in that um definitely
0: Definitely. And I I think that's something that's, I mean, again, that's not something that's been brought up on the podcast yet, you know, about having the facilities for extra support and for people to come in and help you out and a service specifically for that. Um, and whether that's something that is worth, you know, our community looking into, um, and just perhaps having that something that I can pass on to some of the researchers and the people a little bit higher up in, um, this community up at the IHDI, um, you know, perhaps that's something we can look into implementing or creating a little subdivision of carers around the world um, for this kind of thing. Okay. Um, or even a service package that we put in place for existing carers um, with the work that they do as a course that they can do to have that as an additional sideline to their work. But I really appreciate you bringing that up because that's something that I think could quite easily be changed. Um, with really, a bit of education. Yeah. I'm sure
1: there's other people like myself out there that you know maybe single or, um, or a single mum or you know just don't have that network of you know everyone these days are just rushing around and you know it's so hard for somebody at you to you expect somebody else to give up their time and you know your friends or whatever to help you out um, and even parents I mean particularly me being you know that bit older and my parents being you know more frail and it should be me looking after them rather than them looking after me and <laughs> so it's it's sort of, you know it's worrying because I can't expect that often and they feel guilty that they can't help out and they you know it's upsetting for them so you know if there were carers out there I suppose you know you only sort of hear of carers going into care homes rather than into you know a family home I suppose um yeah that that would definitely be an um a market for, for somebody I would have thought yeah
0: absolutely I mean it your journey it sounds like it's been an incredible journey with ups and downs challenges along the way. I really, really appreciate hearing about some of the more difficult things that you've talked about this afternoon. I think that will really um, reach a lot of people on a very personal level. um, And hopefully they'll feel just a little bit more supported knowing that there are other people out there that are going through something similar. And, and just, again, the resounding message that comes out of all of these podcasts and all of these talks is that the support system is the thing that people need and appreciate the most um so if you do have friends or family or anybody that can support you knowing that in advance of your surgeries and prepping somebody for that understanding of what you're going through like you said to uh, to be able to not then feel like such a burden because nobody wants that no
1: no absolutely and I, I think as well is um is there's a couple of other uh, things to sort of bear in mind with surgeons and things as well, is looking for that surgeon that is experienced in hip dysplasia. You know, there's not really a directory of, you know, of, of who to go to. And, um, you know, I was lucky I stumbled upon the Villa Bajra practice. But even then, I'm, I'm questioning now whether to go. I've actually just researched about um, Marcus Banks um, simply because he is more hip dysplasia specialized. And... Um, you know, simply because I wouldn't mind just having another opinion. And I think if there's a directory out there of hip dysplasia patients to go, okay, who's nearest me? Who's, who's qualified to do what I need? Who can help me with stem cells? Who can help me with, you know, PAOs who can help me with um, a replacement and, and, you know, who's, who's sort of top of the game who's to go to and, You know, sometimes I feel like jumping on the plane and going to America sometimes because they seem so much more, you know, involved in this whole, you know, um, like your Joe Wells, who was talking about looking at the whole um, uh, skeletal system and, and, you know, it can affect your back, it can affect your knees. And generally, I find when I go to GPs and surgeons, you know, they say, well, let's just deal with the back. The moment, or let's just deal with the knee at the moment, or you know, and then your insurance company goes, oh well, I can't insure you for everything. You've got to just have one thing done at a time. And this, I find in this country, is so, you know, there's not the bigger picture. There's not this whole thing of let's look at the, you know, the holistic view. Let's look at what's happening. You know, for example, my ankle scream out in pain, my knee scream out in pain, but there's nobody that said to me, you know. If you do this this will help this and this will help this and uh, you know and we need to look at this and first or what order should we do things because i'm sure there's people out there who have you know um lots of ramifications on other parts of their bodies because you know either like me they've left things so long or they just not realize that they compensate they're compensating mm-hmm. um, so yeah and a network of consultants physios um you know, even functional medicine practitioners would would be amazingly helpful, just so I could have one place to go.
0: definitely something that you know i can help with and would love to help with you know we've got lots of platforms and lots of other you know consultants and other physios that i know of already in the industry that do have a great awareness of hip dysplasia but perhaps we can we can do that and put a post out and put some emails and some feelers out to ask people to come back to us if they feel like they'd like to be know known for that speciality and then we can put something up on on my website so that we can have like a map for example where you can see everyone's locations in different countries so um that's it's a wonderful idea and i again appreciate you bringing that to the forefront for everybody because if there are other people that would appreciate that sort of information as well then we'll definitely have a look into into taking that forward so fantastic ideas um so thank you so much for coming on today um, and for sharing your story it's been amazing um, to hear about it and again so many things for people out there to connect with um, and to feel supported by so thank you so much for your time thank you laura thank you for having me on
1: your show it's been amazing thanks very
0: much you're so welcome Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another inspiring and incredible guest. See you soon.